A couple years ago, we started this habit of developing a wellness plan. I was so blessed yesterday at our men's prayer breakfast, first Saturday of the month, by the way, men, be there. A guy came up to me and said, we're just so thankful, my wife and I, that we uh, each year put together this wellness plan. He said, we, we got away last weekend, went to Starved Rock after the service and started filling our wellness plan out. Last week's sermon, we covered the soul, spiritual goals, reading through the Bible and prayer and, and, and the mind, how we're going to cleanse and, and strengthen our mind this year. He said, we're going to do it again this week. We're going to you know, go on the other two categories and we're going to fill this out. I would love for you to have a wellness plan. As your pastor, I would love to know that you have a plan to thrive this year. What's the alternative? Do you want to be a part of a church where people are mentally unwell and not thinking clearly, physically unhealthy and not disciplined, emotionally out of control and unrestrained, and spiritually immature like infants? Do you want to be a part of that church? I don't want to be a part of that church. (laughs) I don't want to be that pastor. Therefore, we're going to have a plan, then we're going to hold each other accountable to our plan. I know that when you make a plan, you can immediately feel fear and guilt that you're going to fail and throw in the towel right away. Trust me, I don't want to try and motivate you with fear and guilt or shame. The last thing I want is to put more guilt upon you. The goal is to have a plan and then to do your best with the support of others around you to make this your finest year of wellness in the faith uh, possible. So that's what we're going for. That's the heart behind it all. Today we're going to talk about having a physical wellness plan and also having an emotional wellness plan. We'll get to that in a second. Let's face it, when it comes to self-control and when it comes to our body and the appetites of our body, it's really hard to stay well physically. Am I right? Here's a picture of so many of the different reasons why it's hard to stay well physically. Because there's all this garbage out there calling to us right now. Come, come to me, eat me, buy me. And I'm really tempting you right now, am I not? You're going to be all day long thinking about all those unhealthy foods that are just out there waiting for you. You want to know what else doesn't make it helpful? Check this out. Did you know this? There is actually National Junk Food Day, July 21st. Halfway through the year, just in case you haven't gotten your quota in for junk food, they remind you that there is plenty of it out there waiting for you. You know, we all struggle with self-control. We are all insecure at times about our body frustrated with the defaults that we have or the setbacks or the fears. And so we have to have a physical wellness plan if we are going to thrive. Let's pray and then we'll talk about the next two areas of how to develop a wellness plan. Father, we consecrate ourselves to you at the beginning of the year. We want to grow this year. We We want to move forward, not backward. We want to go up, not down. We want to be stronger, not weaker, more satisfied in you, not more lusting after the world. So help us to have a plan. Just give us guidance, Jesus, in your word, what it means to plan out physical wellness, emotional wellness, that we might thrive and that we might help other people to thrive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, number three, you can write this down. That's right. One and two were last week. If you weren't here, you got to find it on the app. Okay, so Uh, Have a physical wellness plan is number three. Principles of physical wellness are found all over the Bible. And if you know your Bible, you know that the body is not just this like side job, you know, that you have to kind of think about every now and then. I'm going to get my soul right and get my Bible reading going and get my prayer plan in place. Body, who cares about that? 
Uh, if you know your Bible clearly, you know very well that from the beginning, in the garden, Satan first went for the stomach. You look hungry, Adam and Eve. You should eat that apple. When Jesus was tempted, what was the first thing Satan said? Turn these stones into what? You look hungry. You should eat. He needed to break that fast. Satan will target your physical appetites and try and build these little beachheads in your life where these needed things are suddenly becoming, um, these appetites are becoming satisfied, these desires are becoming satisfied in an ungodly way. That's where it all starts. So it is crucial that God's people understand how important physical wellness is. Not just so that you can look better on Instagram, but so that you actually have a virtuous soul and that's being reflected in your flesh. It all begins, write this down, when you surrender your body to Christ. Surrender your body to Christ. And this is a topical message, so the verses will come from all over. We will project them on the screen. We'll get back into the book of Acts in a few weeks uh, where we go verse by verse through the scripture, but it's topical today. If you don't surrender your body to Christ, whatever you're doing, it's not going to be a godly ambition. There are plenty of people out there who are really self-controlled. They are like championship level, got my body disciplined and strong and healthy, but they're doing it for their own glory. And therefore, in the end, it's worthless. They're just polishing the dust that one day is going to go back into the ground. You know what I mean? But they're not getting ready for eternity. So you have to start by surrendering your body to Christ. Romans 12, 1 to 2 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, yes, Paul's theology does use this idea of you being a living sacrifice to describe your entire life being surrendered to the Lord. But he also applies it directly to your body, what you're doing with each body part, right? That's crucial as well. A living sacrifice, you know, in the Old Testament, when you would bring an offering, sometimes you would bring an animal, New Testament as well. You would bring an animal to the temple. You would offer it as a sacrifice. The animal would be sacrificed in your place. Now you might be like, that sounds cruel. Well, remember, this was also in the temple. It would go to fe festival feasts and everything. So it was kind of like food preparation as well. And so it wasn't just against the animals. But the animal was the sacrifice which, which purified your soul before a living God. Now, here, Paul talks about it as if you're crawling up on the altar. You are the offering. Your body is the offering. And he does apply that specifically to restraining your individual body parts from being offered to sin. We offer our bodies to God so that we don't offer them to sin. That's what it means to become a living sacrifice. So have you offered your entire body and your life to Christ? This is a good moment to ask, are you in the faith? Are you a Christian? Have you surrendered all to Jesus Christ? Because I don't want you to just hear this as if, yeah, I need to count calories. I've been getting a little carried away with the leftover chocolate from the Christmas parties. Christ in you is really where it all begins. 
Have you surrendered your life to Christ and been born again? Then the way you manage your physical wellness is an expression of your submission to Christ. You're showing the world what it means to be a surrendered person. Body, mind, heart, and soul, but body to Jesus. Now that shows up in a variety of ways. It shows up, yes, in wanting to be healthy and well, wanting to be disciplined, wanting to be pure, wanting to be self-controlled, wanting to be modest. These are all self-control things that show up with your body. I like what David Mathis said in his Desiring God article. He said this, the key to self-control is not inward, but upward. Christian self-control is not about bringing our bodily passions under our control, but under the control of Christ. Have you surrendered your body to Jesus Christ and invited him to show up in giving you strength? Some of the most watched sermons from our church in the past have been about physical wellness and the body. Because God's people know they want to do a better job stewarding the body. They want to find out why they lose the battle so often. It can also tie into medical problems, some things that have come up with their bodies that they can't understand, fix, or change, and they're wondering why, and they're wondering what wellness means now. So a lot of people have a lot of energy about this. I want to say at the front end here that we have to be very careful because as we consecrate ourselves to God and devote our bodies to him, the world is going to be clamoring for us to actually be enslaved to their plan for our body. They've got products galore that they are getting ready to roll out to get you to believe that with their product you can have a heavenly body. They're going to tell you all the things that are wrong with the way you look, and then they're going to give you a program and a plan to get after it. Oh, does the world have a plan for your body, a very profitable plan. The Bible is clear that the passions of the flesh wage war against our soul. So let me just invite you to be pure in your motivation, careful to identify any futile motivations you might have in your heart. When it comes to wanting to be self-controlled and surrendering our body to Christ, one of the obvious things we have to watch out for is comparison to other people. If we start with the reality that, well, yeah, I got to get my body under control. I can't believe how I look compared to this person. That is just going to be a toxic mindset. When it comes to having a pure heart, we have to be careful to have true motivation to honor Christ and not false motivation to just try and stack up to other people. People often, when they think of body goals, they think, well, I need to be more athletic. I need to be more attractive. And that will make you a slave to image and what other people think. Hey, listen, I don't want you exhausting yourself running after that this year. I'm so grateful when women who are in the public eye take time to remind people they are human. So here's uh, a slide with some women who posted on, uh, online their pictures before and after their hair and makeup were done. Because they were like, hey, you know, I think people are kind of idolizing me a little too much. Uh, you think I look like this all the time. And they were very honest and open in saying, here's me before the hair and the makeup. Here's me after the hair and the makeup. So um, I'm just like you. <laughs> and you might be tempted to compare yourself to other people. Let's face it, the world is telling men they have to look like Norse gods. And women have to be ready for a beauty contest at all times. And L'Oreal can help. Um, friends, let's not fall into that trap. And I hope you know comparison is a trap. 
I hope you know if you try and fuel yourself by comparison, you're going to wear yourself out. Proverbs 14.30 says this, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy makes the bones rot. Hey, purify your motives. Yes, let's aim to have a physical wellness plan, but don't be beating yourself up comparing yourself to other people or, heaven forbid, trying to match the world's standards for how they think you should appear uh, when you're going out. Surrender your body to Christ. Don't give in to surrendering your body to the world. Hey, listen, surrender your body to Christ. Don't surrender your body to Calvin Klein. Okay, how does that sound? (laughs) Give it to Christ. Don't try and conform to the world's standards. Uh, Jot this down. Be self-controlled, not slothful, and self-indulgent. It begins when you surrender your body to Christ. And I mean, you literally pray and you say, this is yours. You made me. I give this to you to glorify you with every single part. I want to be strong. I want to be healthy. I want to be pure. I want to be blank. Lord, I give my body to you. Have you done that? Then you commit yourself to a self-controlled, not slothful or self-indulgent life. This is the fruit of the Spirit of God, self-control. So part of having your body under control is Christ in you. And if you're not saved, you don't have the heavenly power in you directing you down the right path there. Once the Spirit of God is in you, the presence of God gives you the power to change. Now, I know, I know, wouldn't it be great if the moment you get saved, you are totally transformed, not just in your standing with God, but your mind, you know everything, your body, you, you look perfect and strong, and you never have to worry about disease again, and your heart, you only feel all the right, wouldn't it be nice if we were actually made perfect the moment that we came to Christ? But really, would the world be able to tolerate us? Would they, when Moses came down the mountain and his face was shining, were people like, now we're going to follow you better? Or did they get more agitated with him? We have to realize that God has a plan for our incremental, slow uh, sanctification. It's to his glory. That's why he transforms you slowly, because it's to his glory. So don't bemoan the fact that you still have a long way to go in any area of your life, but press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of you. Be self-controlled, not slothful and self-indulgent. When it comes to sanctification, we can slide theologically too far to one direction. Well, I was going to wait around until God transformed me because he's sovereign over it anyway. Why would I even try? That's not theologically accurate. Or I'm going to do it. It's up to me. Well, that's not theologically accurate either. It's actually both. So we have to have Christ in us, the Spirit flowing through us. It's by his power, but we have to be determined to obey. There is the man's side of being transformed. That means we have to learn how to harness God's power over time, to taste and see that the Lord is good, um, to actively pursue the godly life we are called to. We have to be devoted to it. That takes effort. That takes willpower that is fueled by the Spirit of God. But it does require you to make decisions on a moment-by-moment basis that glorify God. I read a great article 
along this line this week, uh, we'll put a picture of it up here. It's funny that it has a picture of a donut in the article. I'm continuing to tempt you, all right? I'm continuing to test and see if you are truly going to want to get your bodily appetites under control. I would, re- I would recommend you read this whole article. It's by Bradley Wright in Christianity Today, uh, back from 2017, but it's called The Science of Sinning Less, What New Research Reveals About Self-Control and Willpower. As a Christian, I have often wondered about my failures of self-control. Why is it that I can know what I want to do, carefully plan to do it, then do something completely different, something unhelpful and often directly opposed to my beliefs? As Paul wrote, I do not understand what I do. Research has found, for example, that people with more self-control live longer, are happier, get better grades, are less depressed, more physically active, have lower resting heart rates, less alcohol abuse, more stable emotions, more helpful to others, get better jobs, earn more money, have better marriages, are more faithful in marriage, and sleep better at night. And then he goes on to say, but self-control is still a problem for us. We know the benefits. He defines it as regulating desires and impulses, says it's been a virtue since Greco-Roman culture, the Hellenist world emphasized self-control. Even biblical writers talked about how important it is in every area of life. Regulating our desires and impulses lies behind every biblical command to obey when we are tempted. We want to worry, but we are to pray. We want to curse, we are to bless. We want to hate, but we are to love. He spends a whole article asking why chemically, physiologically, we struggle with self-control. And I love one of his conclusions. He says, when we try it and then we fail, we conclude we must not be very good at it. He said, you couldn't be more wrong. Self-control is like a muscle. It weakens immediately after use, but strengthens with frequent use. He gives a great description here. If you were to go to the gym and start benching, you would quickly run out of strength and you could conclude, well, I guess I'm not good at benching. Well, no, that's not the conclusion. The conclusion is you just started getting stronger. If you keep doing that, you will continue to get stronger. He compares that to every area of life. If you start to apply yourself and start to resist the devil, start to resist temptation, you'll feel weak at first because you're depleting the self-control you have, but over time you'll have more of it. So don't lose heart. Be self-controlled because the Bible calls us to be self-controlled, and don't lose heart because you will grow in it as the word says. 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27 says this, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. So back then, runners would get a wreath. We, an imperishable, meaning our crown will come in heaven. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but get this, I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul was afraid his body could be given over to sinful things, and he had the gift of singleness, so variety of temptations uh, that could disqualify him in the faith. You should have the same fear. If I don't get my body under control, I could be tempted and lured into a pattern of sin that disqualifies me in the faith. That should really frighten you, that there is a penalty for not pursuing self-control. There is a promise if we do. 1 Thessalonians 4, 4 4-5 says this, that each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness 
I like this, in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. We're supposed to be different. Holiness and honor is supposed to be showing forth through how we control our bodies. Be self-controlled, not slothful, not self-indulgent. We can neglect the things that we're supposed to be doing, or we can overdo the things that are bringing us comfort. Sloth and self-indulgence we're to walk away from. It's crucial that we connect physical wellness, so we're learning how to have a plan, mind, body, heart, soul. It's really important to know that they are all going together. So if you don't have a physical wellness plan, it will affect how your mind is working and it will affect how your heart is working. They all go together. You wake up with a finite amount of energy and your energy fuels your self-control. A word of warning, if you don't get enough sleep, you are automatically waking up with less energy and therefore less self-control. You will run out of willpower when you run out of energy. You will be more tempted, Peter, who's groggy, to give in to temptation, even though you say, I will never forsake Christ. Go 16 hours, 18, 24 hours without sleep. You'll be ready to do anything dumb. (laughs) That's what the Navy SEAL trainers do during Hell Week. They deprive these strong, athletic, physical soldiers of all sleep, and they become raving lunatics. You're really a day away from losing it. So don't pride yourself on not getting enough sleep. You're really giving yourself a shorter battery and less self-control to begin with. Your body is important to mental clarity and spiritual fortification. Once you've used up your energy, your willpower, your motivation, and your self-control will plummet. Once you're struggling mightily with self-control, where I mean you're really tempted to do things that are like really bad, you have to go back up river and say, where did I lose it all? Because you did lose it. Where did I drain? Where did I leak? Where did I waste all of my energy? If you are a parent of a toddler, you know what happens when they skip the nap. Am I right? I didn't hear an amen. Christians, we skip our naps all the time. Do you know your brain burns 20 to 25% of all the calories you eat in a day? Your brain is a gas guzzler. Do you know that? And so if you're not taking care of your body, if the energy is running short, your mind is not going to be clear. And what does that do to your soul when you're not thinking clearly? And we'll get to the heart in a moment, but my goodness, emotionally what happens when we're not physically well? So here's what I would say, and here's a memorable way that I would say this. Self-control is both messianic and metabolic, okay? You have to be wise, spiritually surrendering, surrendering your body to Christ and striving to be healthy and well. You have to do both. And jot this down, don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. Have other people who are holding you accountable, You know, if you have no boundaries, you have no hope. If you have no energy, you have no hope. And if you have other people who are holding you accountable, you have a better shot at being self-controlled with your body. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, get this, but encouraging one another and all the more as you say the day drawing near. 
Hey, maybe you feel last year like you won the battle of self-control for the body. Maybe you feel like you were 50-50. Maybe you feel like you lost the battle. It's a new year. Let's have a plan and let's have a physical wellness plan to move forward in this area. All right, so number three is have a physical wellness plan. And I hope on this sheet you'll fill out some goals for your body this year. And the next, uh, jot this down, number four, have an emotional wellness plan. Have an emotional wellness plan. When it comes to the emotional world, the scripture is full of uh, commands, invitations, descriptions of what it means to be emotionally well. And if you don't have a plan, you're not going to be emotionally well this year. I went shopping several years ago and brought almost everything in after I went shopping, but I forgot I put a bag of potatoes in the trunk, and it was summer. It didn't take long for those potatoes to remind me they were still in the trunk and they were not happy. What is that smell? I don't know. The kids were asking in the back seat. It smells terrible. Who didn't shower? I don't know. I showered. It doesn't take long to realize you have made a terrible mistake leaving the potatoes in the trunk. When I opened that trunk, whoa, my goodness. It was toxic. A lot of times people uh, learn the mistake of leaving something in the fridge for too long, but they don't learn the lesson when they leave toxic emotions in their heart for too long. And if we're not careful, there can be a lot of things left in our heart that smell really bad. And then we're not emotionally well because there are things rotting in our soul. Another way to think about it is when you've got stuff going on in your heart, you've got to learn to flip the hamper and to sort the laundry. How am I feeling and what goes where? What's godly? What's true? What's untrue? What's unhealthy? You have to learn to do it by talking to God and talking to other people. And like when you flip the hamper, the stinky stuff is on the bottom. Okay, And you've got to learn where that's all coming from. One way that you can have an emotional wellness plan is just mapping out how you're feeling. Here's a list of emotions. There's so many of them. And you can just say, here's how I'm feeling. You know, you can, <laughs> this resource can be um, found online, but there's high and low emotional states. There's negative and positive emotional states. Uh, when you put them all together, you can be anything from enraged, ashamed, thoughtful, content, inspired, embarrassed, pessimistic, elated, and you have to know how you're feeling. This, by the way, is called the truth. This is, this is what you're discovering in your heart. This is what's true about how you're feeling. And I think finding that truth will set you free if you learn how to manage it responsibly. Here's another resource. Um, you can't even see these words because there's so many of them. But this resource is 87 human emotions and experiences. Then she sorts them into places we go when we compare ourselves to others or things don't go as planned, when life feels beyond us, when things aren't what they seem, when we're hurting, when we're with others, or we fall short, or we feel wrong, when life is good. There's all of these possible ways you can be feeling right now. And if you're not aware and alert and expressing how you're feeling to God and others, you won't be well. You won't be well. Okay, it all begins again, jot this down, when you surrender your heart to Christ. Surrender your heart to Christ. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Everything that's within you. That means that it has to be surrendered. By the way, the world will not tell you to do this. The world will not tell you to surrender your feelings to God. The world will tell you to turn your feelings into your God. 
If this is how I'm feeling, then the world's going to have to deal with it because I'm going to be true to myself. Well, surrendering to yourself is antithetical to surrendering to your God. You can't surrender to yourself and demand that other people do it. That's just self-reliance. It's pride. And it's unbelief when you don't surrender your emotions to be controlled by Christ. When you discover your feelings and then share them with others, you have to also bring them within the bounds of Christ's control, Scripture, and community. Then you decide what to do with them together. Colossians 3.15 says this, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Did you hear that? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So you got all those feelings. Often they've got their pitchforks and their torches and they want to go to war. And, and who's in control of all of them? Who's the king emotion in your heart? The peace of Christ is wearing the crown. Okay, he's the governing authority over all of your emotions. To which indeed you were called in one body. Do you know what that one body means? It's not your body, it's the church body. Meaning you are in community. So the peace is not just, fine, I'll calm down, serenity now. You have to also manage your emotions in a way that creates communal harmony and love. That's your responsibility. So feeling mapping can only go so far. Generally, people struggle in two ways. Either you can't sort your emotions, meaning you're not sure how you feel or how you should be feeling, or you can't stop them. You know exactly how you feel and you can't hold them back. Maybe you're a person like me, you have trouble sorting them. Maybe you're somebody who has trouble stopping them. Either way, you have to surrender your heart to Christ. You have to bring it to Christ. It's not enough to say, well, here's what I'm starting with. You know, you have to actually, that's like spilling the Scrabble letters out on the ground. You have to figure out what they are meant for in the will of God. So have you surrendered your heart to Christ? Have you told him, I'm furious. I'm jealous. I'm depressed. I'm broken. Have you told God how you're feeling and then surrendered that to him? Have you told other people how you're feeling? I'm feeling exhausted. I'm feeling depleted. I'm feeling dis in despair. I'm feeling in disarray. I'm Have you told other people how you're feeling? That is the way you can own them and then surrender them. Some people stop. When they finally feel ready. All right, I'm ready to say it. I'm ready to say it. Um, you have been disappointing me. There, I said it. Okay, well, where do we go from there? I don't know. I just had to say it. There's more to it than that. <laughs> Saying it is just the beginning of stewarding your feelings responsibly in community. So surrender your heart to Christ. And then jot this down. Identify your unhealthy pattern. We all have it. Identify your unhealthy pattern we all have unhealthy patterns, but can you actually narrate what happens when you start going bad emotionally? See, when the test comes, when you're pruned, when the fire breaks out in your life and you're squeezed, your heart will come out and there will be an unhealthy emotional pattern you follow. If you can't tell people, hey, here's how I struggle, if you're unaware of it or blind to it, or if you're aware of it but you just justify it, then you're going to get stuck emotionally this year. You have to be able to narrate your unhealthy pattern and invite other people to hold you accountable. <clears throat> God's been teaching me a ton about unhealthy patterns that lead to sin, that lead to doubt, that lead to pride in my own heart. A few years ago, I was super unhealthy emotionally, struggling a lot, still working, still 
you know, being a father and a husband and a pastor, but on the inside really felt like I had four flat tires. And it did begin to impact those around me, affected relationships, affected my leadership. So I went through a great program. Lauren and I went through a great program together to help identify these healthy and unhealthy emotional patterns. And it was great. It was a two-day thing, and they sat there and just heard your whole life story and said, it sounds like these are patterns in your life. It's like, yes, very encouraging and helpful, not meant to condemn, but meant to build up. Then I went through a six-month growth plan with a fellow pastor under the accountability of this organization and really learned, here's the direction of health and wellness given how I'm wired. Now, Maybe you do need something professional like that because you are struggling so much. Maybe you just need with others around you to say, I'm ready to actually face some things, a clog in my heart, get it cleared out, and feel well, treat other people well. You have to identify your own unhealthy pattern. That begins when you know the big four areas of temptation. Jot this down. Anger defies God's perfect control. Anger defies God's perfect control. One of these four will be your signature struggle, and maybe anger is yours. I'm guessing if anger is your signature struggle, it's going to be hard to cover it up. If you're an anxious person, you might be able to play it cool, but if you're an angry person, I bet those around you know it. Anger defies God's perfect control. Listen to that sentence carefully. God is taking perfect care of you. He is in perfect control of everything around you. When you lose the battle with anger, and I don't mean you just get angry about something, I mean you cross over into sin. In your anger, you sin. You are defying God who has perfect control in your life. It's a defiance of God. What is anger? It's a strong feeling of being upset or annoyed because of something wrong or bad. Meaning you'll have a reason. You'll have a, you don't understand why I'm angry. And then you give your reason and you feel justified. It's really important to understand this lesson in faith. If you know your sin is a problem and you say that you're willing to work on it, but you haven't taken the step to figure out what's fueling it, that's where the real fight is and get rid of that, then the sin will always come back. And when you're talking to people and helping them, and they're, yeah, I know, I need to calm down and cool a little bit, then you take that step over to what's actually fueling the anger. Well, I think you actually need to love your boss and treat him better. How could you say that? Well, now you've touched the fuel. And if you haven't located the fuel source to your sin, your sin's going to keep coming back. And if you don't repent of the fuel, you're not repenting of the sin, all right? And I'm preaching to myself on this one, too, because there are very often times I don't want to get rid of the fuel. I'll just... When it comes to anger, it makes you want to shout, hurt people emotionally, verbally, sometimes physically. It costs you control, hurts the name of Christ, loses you respect, maybe gets you compliance in the short term. You have... This is really important to understand you will have less control after you, in sin, try and grab more control. You need to know that. The moment you cross over and think, I'm going to take command of this situation, you're getting less 
of what you truly want. Less. You always walk away from that with less respect, less power, less integrity. So you're settling for less. Here's a picture of a volcano. This is a great picture. Volcanoes create their own weather system. You see that? A volcano erupts. The volcano's at the bottom there. Do you see that? That could be you right now in your home, at your job, in your car. Are you, are you losing the battle with anger? The Bible says anger lives in the heart of fools, doesn't produce the righteousness of God, must be contained and channeled to healthy outlets. And it can fuel faith. There's a reason why anger is there. The Bible doesn't say don't be angry. It says in your anger don't sin. It can really fuel your faith. It can get you fired up about things that are important to God. It can show you in the world what's right and wrong. It can protect your family, your children, your marriage from things that are harmful. So there's a lot of productive power there, but it has to be a godly ambition. It has to fuel things that are important. So I don't know if you're winning the battle with anger. I don't know if you're losing it. I don't know if you've lost it. But it's time to admit where you're at and to invite other people to hold you accountable. Anger is one big battle area in the heart of God's people. That's the first one. Second one is anxiety. Jot this down. Anxiety is a useless and exhausting substitute for peace. Anxiety is a useless and exhausting substitute for peace. So the, these subpoints uh, capture very potently what the Scripture says about this. So Scripture says anger defies God's perfect control. Scripture says anxiety is useless. It can't add an hour to your day. And exhausting exhausting. And it's a substitute for what you really want, which is peace. Anxiety is a feeling of worry or nervousness due to an uncertain future. It's future-focused usually. So, how's this going to end? How's this going to end? This is my signature struggle. Where's this going? How's this going to end? How are they going to react? What's going to happen next? It's, it's like you're getting in the DeLorean back to the future, you know, and you're going into the future, and you're like, no, Biff's got the almanac, you know, and you're freaking out over something that hasn't happened yet. Um, anxiety. Are you a worry wart? Are you a worrier? Back in 2017, someone hacked all 156 tornado sirens in Dallas and turned them all on at the same time, seven minutes before midnight. They couldn't turn them off for an hour and a half. <laughs> now, on the one hand, I'm like, that's pretty cool, man. But on the other hand, I'm like, I'm glad I wasn't trying to get some sleep there. If you struggle with anxiety, you're like those 1.3 million residents who couldn't go to sleep in Dallas because they were worrying what was going on. The sirens are always going off in your soul. Now look, anxiety is meant to show you things that could go wrong. We're supposed to like, you know, the, the fool sees danger and doesn't turn around. We're supposed to know what's dangerous and actually take action about that. But when the sirens never go off, it's a faith problem. We have a faith problem when we're constantly fearing and we're not trusting God. It's really pride. 1 Peter 5, 6-7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Are you winning the battle with anxiety? It's a useless and exhausting substitute for peace. Are you losing it? Have you lost the battle with anxiety? I would just caution you that it is pride 
to think that your fears are beyond God's control. It is pride and it is unbelief. God clearly tells you there's no reason to plunge your soul to turn on all the tornado sirens in your heart. There's no reason to do that. Cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. There's this diagram we use in our soul care training. We'll put this up here, a picture of a tree. And there's the fruit trunk root. And the fruit is your behavior. The trunk is what's going on, your thoughts, your feelings. And then the root is your desires. If you struggle with anger, if you struggle with anxiety, it's coming out. But you've got to figure out your thought patterns, your emotions that are leading to that. And it really springs from your desires, what you want what is driving all of it, you've got to get down to the roots and be able to say it. I'm anxious because I want to feel like I have more control in my relationship than I do. I'm anxious because I don't know how this is going to end with my kids, my doctor, my finances. I want to feel like I have more control here. You have to be able to know where it's coming from. And here's the thing. You might be worrying about really good things. You just might not be surrendering them to your almighty God. So anger, anxiety, the third one is despair. Despair says God lied about hope. Despair says God lied about hope. Despair is feeling sad, hopeless, unimportant, and powerless. If you struggle with feeling sad, hopeless, unimportant, and powerless, often life is sad. The Bible doesn't say, cheer up, never be sad again. But in your sadness, you just can't sin. And It has to be black and white in your heart that in Christ, you are never to despair. Okay, that's where it crosses over into pride and unbelief. I know exactly how this is going to end. God is going to forsake me and no one will love me. And whoa, whoa, whoa. How did we get all the way down that road? So despair says God lied about hope. It's really important to understand that uh, when you kind of sentence yourself to the saddest ending you can ever imagine... And if you're kind of prone to writing bad endings to God's stories, you are accusing God of lying. You are. You're saying God lied. You might want to say that out loud to yourself as a bit of a rebuke. David talked to his soul all the time. You might want to say, I'm tempted to believe God's lying to me right now, but I'm not going to do it. You can have an honest description of what's truly going on, and your life might be really sad and tragic, and it's okay to admit that. My goodness, read the book of Lamentations. You know, I mean, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. It's okay to be honest, but it's not okay ever, ever to despair in Christ. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Despair says God lied about hope. Hebrews 6, 18 to 19 says this, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This is, by the way, Anchor Church's theme verse. Anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. This, if you know, the inner place behind the curtain is God's holy presence in heaven. So it's like you're a ship, you've got an anchor, it's being held by God himself. Where? Not down there like a normal ship, up there in heaven. It's an upside down anchor. That's an awesome picture. Doesn't matter what's going on in earth. You've got an anchor that's holding you from above. That's an awesome, awesome, reassuring truth. 
Right now, whatever you're facing on earth, you are being held fast by the hand of God in heaven. Let nothing move you. The Bible doesn't say no weapon will be formed against you. It says no weapon formed against you will stand. So get ready for all the gusts and the currents. Life will be sad, maybe at times seemingly hopeless. You'll feel unimportant, overlooked, and powerless, but never despair. Despair says God lied about hope. And the last one is pleasure-seeking. Anger, anxiety, despair, and pleasure-seeking. Pleasure-seeking poisons true joy. There's a lot of words for this in Scripture. Folly, the fool, um, the prodigal. But this is pleasure-seeking, and maybe this is your struggle. It poisons true joy. Pleasure-seeking is feeling attracted to folly and sin in order to stay happy. Attracted to folly and sin in order to stay happy. When you do this, you're denying reality, escaping responsibility, perhaps abusing substances. You're reckless in your relationships and you're overindulging your appetites. I will be happy at all costs is what this says. It's pleasure-seeking, it's folly, and it's poisoning your true joy. You should know by now if anger, anxiety, despair, or pleasure-seeking are your primary struggle. If you don't know, ask the people who know you best. They will tell you. If you have a sibling, they will tell you. If you have a spouse, they will tell you. You should know which one is your biggest one, but if you're tempted to quit, to run, to bolt, to flee, to deny, I don't want to talk about it, I'm going out, you're a pleasure seeker. I really need you to know that this, it's not that you just want to go out to Panera and have a good meal, it's when you're sinning. You're, you're neglecting good things. You're denying reality. That's when it turns into sin. It's important that you understand every time you do that, you're poisoning true joy. God has true joy for you, and you're putting poison in it with your pleasure seeking. You're poisoning your own joy when you sinfully seek pleasure. Psalm 32, 8 to 10, God says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Did you hear that? Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Maybe it's time to admit that pleasure-seeking is your bane and you're poisoning your own joy again and you need to invite other people to hold you accountable. I'd love for you on your sheet when you develop goals for your heart to say, anxiety is my big one, I'm struggling with despair. Tell other people, tell God, and then invite him to give you a healthy heart this year. One last quote and then we'll close out. A.J. Gossip summarizes our effort really well. He says this, you'll not stroll into Christ's likeness with your hands in your pockets, shoving the door open with a careless shoulder. This is no hobby for one's leisure moments, taken up at intervals when we have nothing much to do, put down and forgotten when our life grows full and interesting. It takes all of one's strength, all of one's heart, all of one's mind, all of one's soul, given freely and recklessly and without restraint. Hey, in that spirit, let's fill out our wellness plan this week and let's ask others to hold us accountable. Let's go to the Lord and pray right now. Lord Jesus, we just settle our souls in your presence. We lift so much up to you after this sermon. Our bodies, O Lord, 
will tempt us, try us, fill us with desires that are unwholesome, ungodly, dark, defiant. Lord, we can't control them without you. So we surrender our bodies to you and ask that you would help us to pursue physical wellness this year. Yes, Lord, we want to feel better and eat better and look better. We want to be flexible. We want, we want all those things. But above it all, we want to show people we're surrendered to you. Because your spirit is in us, we can control our bodies, not just so that we can run or, or jump, but so that we can hold ourselves back from life-altering sin or from indulgences that will weaken us or even disqualify us. So help us to beat our bodies and to make it our slaves as you reign in us. Consecrate us, O Lord, and bless our plans. And also when it comes to our heart, so many feelings fill the hearts of your people every week, Lord. People are anxious, they're worried, they're angry, they're sad, they're down, they're crushed. Lord, all of those emotions, you want us to bring them to you. You want to be our good shepherd. You don't want us to feel guilty, Lord, or ashamed when we have these emotions, but you want us to be healthy in our heart. So whatever your people are feeling right now, whatever their main struggle is, whether it's anger or anxiety or whether it's despair or just pleasure-seeking, may we submit that to you. Ask for you to make us healthy, whatever that looks like in our own heart. And may we invite others to hold us accountable this year. Jesus, make us a healthy church, full of people who are godly, growing, broken, but ashes turning into beauty. And may it be your presence in the hearts of your people that moves us forward this year together. We love you, Jesus, and this is an expression of us following you. Come into our hearts again with all of your love and joy. Fill us with your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.